Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's episode number 159. Thanks for joining me. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're broadcasting, as we always do, from Poway, California, 92064. Got a lot in store for you today. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about 9-11. I mean, right now it is 9-11-2020. We're going to kind of look, uh, roll the clock back, roll the calendar back to 20 or 19 years ago and talk a little bit about what happened on that day. And then we're going to talk a bit about our foreign policy that has um, come, come as a result. And so that's why I titled this 9-11 Groundhog Day, because, you know, it just seems like the same foreign policy has been continuing. And we're going to kind of get into that. Um, but also, I'm going to have a number of updates, you know, here in our local community of Poway, California. It's election season and we have forums and other things. So I've got some updates and breakdowns on, on a number of issues. Um, this podcast, of course, is is live streamed on both YouTube and on Facebook. I welcome you to join in. If you have any questions or comments you want to share, just type them into the comment section um, on YouTube or Facebook, and I'll be happy to, as long as it's not completely outrageous, I'll be happy to read it on the air, and we'll kind of have a little bit of fun, a little bit of a conversation. And and some of our past podcasts, we've done exactly that, and it's been great. Um, that's part of the reason why I've transitioned to doing these as a live stream, because I love the engagement, the back and forth, the dialogue. It's just not me, you know, on a mountaintop sharing my opinions on the on the um, on the issues, but actually getting your input and making this more of a dialogue. Um, in fact, when I started this podcast, it was all dialogue. It was all interviews with uh, people. And, you know, now with COVID, it's a little more challenging to do that. So uh, we definitely invite your um, input in these live streams. Um, yeah, before we, we get really dive into the whole 9-11 bit, uh, just want to give you a couple of quick updates on what's been going on with the project. And, you know, we have, you know, it's election season. So we have a number of uh, candidates that have come forward here in the podcast. Uh, we had uh, Frank Fournier that joined us Gosh, must have been about a week ago or so, and we had a great conversation with him. He's a candidate for city council in Poway um, in District 2, or no, District 4, pardon me. And, um, wow, we just huge viewership and downloads of the Frank Fournier um, podcast. I was really surprised. Um, I knew very little, little bit about him, but it seemed like a lot of people were hungry to learn about Frank, or he had a lot of supporters out there, but I'll tell you, um, got a lot of response on that podcast. And then, um, and then we just had Phil Factor that joined us here on Monday, on Labor Day earlier this week. And boy, we had like a two hour discussion. Uh, you know, Phil, of course, is a candidate in District 2 um, here in Poway. And, you know, for our city council, there's two districts, actually a total of four districts. Um, so there's four representatives plus a mayor that's sent on our city council. But two of those districts are in the election cycle this year. The other two, I think, won't be on until 2022. Um, so we had um, we had Phil Factor that joined us for a couple of hours. It was his second visit on the podcast, and that was a lot of fun. So really enjoyed that. Um, coming up on Monday, on Monday, September 14th at 2 o'clock, we'll have Kalen Frank will join us here on the podcast. Of course, Kalen is the candidate running as the incumbent that's running in District 4, 
with uh, against Chris Olps and Frank Fournier. Uh, we had Kalen on in the 2018 election cycle. Uh, it's a very pleasant person. And um, we talked about a wide range of issues in Poway. So really looking forward to that discussion. That'll be Monday, September 14th at 2 p.m. And we invite you to join us there as well and take questions and you'll be able to ask questions of Kalen. Uh, so looking forward to that. And then the only other candidate, at least here in town, that I haven't talked to in a podcast yet is Barry Leonard. Uh, Barry is the incumbent in District 2. Um, and actually, I, I had a conversation with him last night, and he agreed that he will come on the podcast. We just haven't picked the right date and time. Um, you know, we just got to figure out when it's appropriate. I try to let the candidates, you know, decide. I know the the challengers always want to come on immediately um, because they need to get their word out and they're aggressive. The incumbents are usually a little more calculated, and when they choose the date, uh, that makes sense for them. So I'm looking forward to Barry Leonard. He'll be joining us hopefully sometime in the next uh, two to four weeks, something like that. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Barry. Um, And then, you know, we're, we're still trying to keep this uh, podcast on this Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And I've been mostly successful doing it. Um, I'm trying to stick to Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 PM because it is a live stream. That way we can get your input, your thoughts, and if you're, you know, really digging it, you'll you can schedule it into your day and you'll know when we're going to be on and when you can um, engage and we can have those conversations. So I'll be sticking to that that Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 2 p.m. schedule. But I missed last Wednesday. Um, last Wednesday, I like I had a client meeting and I, it was just it was a uh it was a locked in time. And so sometimes I have to skip it. But thanks for your flexibility as we go through this. I do this podcast, of course, out of my own you know, personal interest and my own love. But this podcast doesn't pay the bills. So uh, sometimes I got to make some adjustments as I go. Uh, but fortunately, I have a pretty flexible schedule. I'm a small business owner, a consultant. I can kind of move my things around pretty easily uh, so I can make time for this Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two. But Sometimes I can't. Uh, so th- for those of you that uh, uh, enjoy you know, coming on with us at 2 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, thank you for that. Um, and the other announcement I want to make is, um, you know, we just had the candidate forum last night for the Poway Unified School District. And that was um, uh, Cindy Seitzma and Jimmy Karam, and who were both guests on this podcast. That was last night. And, and near the end of this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about that candidate forum or that debate. And it was um, you a know, very interesting event. And there are some interesting comments I want to share. But then tonight is the second uh, forum. Um, and this is going to be of the Poway City Council candidates. A lot of the names that I've already shared. There'll be five of them there. Barry Leonard and Phil Factor as well as Kalen Frank, Chris Olps, and Frank Fortier. And that's uh, co-sponsored, or excuse me, it's moderated by the League of Women Voters. So it's going to be a very professionally well-run event. And you can go to the League of Women Voters, and they have a website where you can um, uh, click on a link, and you can actually submit questions that can be asked for that. And that event's going to be tonight at 7. If you go on my 
uh, Facebook page, John Riley Project, you'll notice that I have posted or actually shared posts that Chris Cruz posted in Poway, uh, South and North Poway Votes, where she has actually broken down a lot more of the details and the links to ask questions. So I invite you to join us tonight at 7. I think that's going to be a ton of fun. Um, and there's going to be actually a couple of more um, forums that are coming that are going to be sponsored by the Green Valley Civic Association and the Poway Chamber of Commerce. But I was really happy um, that I was actually able to co-sponsor this first set of um of forums and uh, very happy to participate in the community dialogue. And, and I was really proud of how everything went last night and really looking forward to tonight. Um, okay. So let's get into nine 11. I mean, today is nine 11, 2020. And, you know, it, 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 there's just so much emotion every nine 11 and we see the tributes and the memorials and we see the video replay of the, of the towers coming down. Um, we see just so much patriotism that comes forward on these days. Um, it, it's and the president always makes a speech and it's always at a really big day, an important day, but you know, the event happened 19 years ago and the first question I want to ask is, is what were you doing on 9-11 last year? In fact, if you want to share your thoughts and comments of where you were on 9-11, please put those into the comment section. I'll read them on the air. I have a pretty interesting um, story. So my wife and I, gosh, our, our children were really young then. I think they were um, one and a half and, and four or something like that. They were like two and four years old. They were very young. And so uh, they stayed at my parents' house and uh, my wife and I, we actually uh, went on a trip to Costa Rica and boy, we had a great time. And if you've ever gotten a chance to go there, what a beautiful country, a country that is very welcoming of Americans, um, a country that uh, just has so much to offer, both inland and the jungles. We went to Mount Tabacon, where they have the volcano and the hot springs and spas, and that was gorgeous. We went through a lot of uh, small cities and villages, and then we went, made our way to the coast, uh, to Manuel Antonio uh, National Park, and and we were out in, in some of those areas. It's just fabulous country. And we were there for a week. And then it was um, the day we were supposed to fly home. We were actually in the airport. Our bags were checked and we were in the waiting area waiting to board our plane when everything went down with 9-11. And, you know, we heard like a bunch of commotion over at the bar where people were you know drinking in the morning in, in San Jose, Costa Rica. And that's when the towers came down and, you know, I'm sure just like all of us, you know, it was like watching, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie on, te on television as those towers came down. But um, obviously, you know, I was in an airport and so everything shut down. Um, we, you know, obviously couldn't fly home. We were able to get our luggage back. And then we went back to our hotel where we were the previous night and we just decided to wait it out. And, we ended up having to stay in Costa Rica for an additional week because we couldn't fly home. There were no flights coming back to America. Meanwhile, our children are tiny, you know, and they're with my, my parents and, you know, we're worried about family. You know, I mean, it was, remember it was just complete chaos. You didn't know what was going to happen next. And I remember thinking all kinds of crazy potential outcomes like, oh, my God, what if the terrorists blow up a San Onofre nuclear power plant? And, you know, what if they poison the water? What if 
there's a blackout and the grid is shut down. Remember, we were thinking about every possible scenario. And so when we were there in that second week of Costa Rica, our vacation was extended. I'll put that in quotes, but we definitely were not on vacation that second week. We were glued to the television, um, getting updates and um, trying to you know connect with friends and family back home. And it was it was crazy. And after about three or four days, I, I really wanted to just, let's just go home and there's got to be a creative way. But of course the, you know, the airlines were completely shut down in America and they were shut down. If I recall for at least a couple of weeks and here we are like three or four days into it. And then I began investigating and said, I wonder if there is a way that we could maybe fly into Mexico and then work our way up to Tijuana and then walk across the border. Um, and cause I found out that planes were flying in Mexico and the, and the national border was open, you know, obviously if you had all your paperwork. And so we decided to do that. And so I remember we flew into Mexico city and by that point, I think it might've been September 16th with which I think is it's a national holiday in Mexico. It might be their independence day. And so we were in a hotel room that night in, in downtown Mexico city, and there was explosions going off all around us because of the national holiday, you know, and we're already kind of, um, you know, uh, we, we had hair triggers because of the 9-11 events. Um, but then we eventually got an Aeromexico flight. And I remember we, we flew in, you know, like an hour at a time and we'd stop at these little airports along the way. And about the fourth or fifth stop finally was Tijuana. Um, and then we were able to, uh, you know, to plane and, and the Tijuana, you know, airport is right there at the national border. Um, I think we just took a short taxi or maybe we even walked. I can't remember. And then we walked across the border and our family was there to pick us up. But um, it's interesting. I think for, you know, for my parents' generation, the question always was, where were you when John F. Kennedy was shot? And everyone's got a story. But for people of my generation and perhaps of your generation, it is, where were you on 9-11? And everyone seems to have a story because everyone remembers exactly where they were because it was like a snapshot in time where things froze. Um, so it, I just think it's a fascinating discussion when you're with friends and family just to talk about where were you on 9-11. But yeah, that was my story. Kind of an interesting one. I don't know too many people that were essentially outside of America during 9-11 and were locked out from coming back into their home country. But I, uh, alas, I was one of them. Um, but it's interesting how, you know, after 9-11, of course, the aftermath, you know, there was um, at first you know, fear and panic about terrorism. And then it turned into re re retribution and revenge. And we got to find out who did this. And and, um, you know, obviously that led to the attacks in Afghanistan and which led to a whole series of government policies, uh, both foreign and domestic. And I'm going to really get into that. But it, it was interesting in the very beginning. We just saw so much nationalism, so much in, you know, patriotism, you know, patriotism and nationalism, a little bit different, but um, probably then it was maybe more so patriotism because we would see, you know, pickup trucks with American flags and, you know, 9-11 always remember these stickers on the back of cars. And there was just this outpouring of grief, outpouring of, of American patriotism. Um, and it's interesting because, now we see still some of that, but it seemed to have morphed 
more into nationalism. We're still seeing the, the, the pickup trucks with the American flags now with with American flags and Trump flags and Blue Lives Matter flags. But it's interesting how, you know, the. Uh, this whole notion of America, you know, really got amplified after 9-11 and then has been percolating at that high level for a long time. And it just seems with, you know, with with Trump and and the the nationalism he brought forward, it's gone up to a whole new level. So I, I, I can see that linkage, you know, between the people responding to 9-11 and the re- people responding to Trump. And obviously it's not a one-to-one relationship, but there's definitely a bridge between those two. And it's interesting to consider. Um, but yeah, then, you know, suddenly our nation was plunged into war and, and at first it was just the attacks on Afghanistan. And then shortly after that, of course, we sent troops into Afghanistan and then the Iraq war. And we, we sent troops into Iraq and, and I'm, I'm saying this is like nine 11 groundhog day because it just seems like it's never ended. You know, it seems like we've been fighting this war on terror forever, and it's probably going to continue forever. I mean, in fact, those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have really never ended. They're still going. Um, So it just goes on and on and on. The war on terror and the actual military wars go on and on and on. And I mean, World War Two, you know, we started that, what, in December of 41, and it was over in August of 45. So what, what is that? It's like, is that three and a half years, <laughs> approximately? We started and ended it in three and a half years. And we're now 19 years into, um, into Afghanistan, and we're now, gosh, what, 17 and a half years out of, uh, since Iraq started, and we still have troops in Iraq. So, it is. It's like Groundhog Day. And there was a really interesting um, tweet that I saw recently, and I, this is a great one. And it said, because it's all because of 9-11, right? Um, and this, this tweet said, name one thing in the last 20 years the American foreign policy establishment has been correct about. And you think about that and you're like, man, I mean, it's really hard to figure that out because – you know, they were wrong on the Iraq war that they've been, you know, they've mismanaged the Afghanistan war, you know, the, 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 the drone war across the world that you can look at the, um, the, the trade wars and the war on immigrants. And then we can go down the list of all of this foreign policy where either they've gotten terrible intelligence where they've been wrong, or they've enacted terrible policies where they've been wrong. Um, so, but yet the foreign policy establishment is bigger and stronger and more well-funded now than it's ever been. Um, and what's also interesting is, is that the foreign policy of America doesn't change very much, depending if it's a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. Um, you know, I've often claimed that the two parties are dramatically more similar than they are different. In fact, maybe as much as 90 percent the same and 10 percent different. But when it comes to foreign policy, they're absolutely very, very similar. I mean, there's a couple of little differences on how some of these wars are managed, but they're they're very, very similar. And you know, remember, like right after 9-11, you know, George Bush is up there and he's saying they hate us for our freedoms. Right. Trying to stoke the fire of American um, American exceptionalism and everything. And again, that was just a lie. It was a complete lie. I mean, because Osama bin Laden came forward with his manifesto, 
And in his manifesto, he detailed why they attacked um, America on 9-11. And it was very clear. It was because we were fighting a military over there. It was because we were bombing their um, their lands. We had military troops in their sacred lands in Saudi Arabia and a lot of other countries in the Middle East. I mean, that's why they attacked the USS Cole as well. So they've always they've they're not the terrorists were not fighting America because they hate our freedoms. I mean, that was just a flat out lie by the U.S. government. They were fighting against us because we were fighting against them because we were disrupting them. Um, and it, it was, but it was hard for people back then to see it that way, because when we were attacked, people wanted revenge, they wanted to respond, and then when apparently, um, you know, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, there were some people that were just flat out determined to um, take him out, and. God, I remember this was probably in 2002 and I was with one of my good friends, Scotty, and we were in Las Vegas and it was for his birthday. And one of his buddies was with us and uh, Scotty, uh, Scotty's friend was in the Marines. Yeah, he was a mechanic on an aircraft carrier. And he, geez, he told me stories about how an aircraft carrier is like a 5,000 person city, you know, and, you know, people that cook and do laundry. And it's a, it's a whole organization, something that I've always taken for granted. Um, but boy, was he dead set on taking out Saddam Hussein back then. And I remember saying, you know, we don't know if he has weapons of mass destruction. You know, he hasn't attacked America. Why are you, everyone so dead set on taking him out? And boy, it was almost like you couldn't talk about these things rationally with people because there was such fervor, such hatred, such pro-America, anti-Middle East, such uh, pro-America, anti-threat. Um, but a lot of these threats were just made up. And I think we're learning that. So I, I see a quote here from Amanda. Uh Matamala, and she says, how do you think Republicans and Democrats are the same when it comes to handling wars and conflicts? And I'm actually going to get into that. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, the, the Afghanistan war was was bipartisan. It was um, elected by both parties. And, um, you know, President Bush obviously enacted the Afghanistan war, but President Obama expanded it. And President um, Obama um, implemented George Bush's withdrawal strategy from Iraq, but he kept the troops in longer than he promised. So um, there, there, and then Obama was sending troops back into Iraq. So they're both pro-war, maybe to slightly different degrees, but they're definitely both pro-war. I mean, we can go back, look at the Vietnam War. I mean, there was Democratic uh, presidents as well as Republican presidents involved in that war, both fighting that war aggressively. So um, the war policy in my opinion, is far more similar between the two parties than not. Um, neither of the parties are are what I would call a a, a party that's truly for peace on an international um, on an international stage. Um, so again, I'm going to kind of get into some of that. Um, Amanda also asked another question. I think President Bush was dead set on taking out Hussein because his dad. Um, the, uh, because of his dad, the other president, Bush, meaning it was more personal. And yeah, of course, it was very clear that President Bush, um, George W. Bush, was dead set to go after Iraq. And, and again, I'm going to kind of get into that here. Um, 
but yeah, like let, let's 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 break down the Iraq War part of it for a minute. So first of all, the the Congress, of course, never declared war on Iraq. Um, they just gave the president the authorization to go to war if he so chose. But it was interesting because everybody knew, just like Amanda just said here on on the live stream, everybody knew that George Bush was going to go to war with Iraq. It was just a matter of when. And, you know, Cheney was there and they're pushing buttons. You knew that was going to happen. It was either, you know, retribute. It was either to finish the the work that uh, his father failed to finish. I think there's a lot of people felt that after the Kuwait invasion in, in the early 90s, Gulf War One, some people believe that America should have marched all the way into Baghdad and conquered the country. Um, but then remember, there was an assassination attempt on George H.W. Bush. So there was now potentially the son trying to get revenge for the father. So and, and, you know, this was building for a long time. You know, the George W. Bush and the Republican establishment were fanning the flames saying that Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So if the Democrats knew that George W. Bush was so dead set for war, then why did so many of them vote to give him authorization to go to war? Sometimes you'll hear from Democrats and they'll say, well, the Democrats didn't technically vote to go to war in Iraq. They just voted to give the president the option to go to vote war in Iraq if they so chose. But we all knew that the president was going to go to war in Iraq at, a, at some matter in time. And, and then besides, it's, it's what a terrible decision by Congress in the first place to, to wuss out and not declare war or oppose war. Instead, they just abdicated their power, their constitutionally defined power that they are the entity that, that, that um, declares war. And they just pass the buck to the president. And we've seen so much of that where Congress has gotten weaker and weaker by their own choice because they don't want to take tough stands on tough issues. And instead, they just keep giving the president more and more power. And that's been going on for decades. And it's, you know, at an all time high now, and it's going to continue to get worse until Congress pushes back. And that's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. That's both parties. So um, it, it's something. So. um it's also interesting that uh, the Democrats, not now, not all the Democrats voted uh, to authorize President Bush to go to war, but the Democrats that knew they were going to run for president in 2004 or 2008 did authorize um, the attack in Iraq. Like, for example, Hillary Clinton voted, you know, the War Authorization Act voted to allow Bush to go to war if he so chose, which I'm going to say Hillary voted for the Iraq war. But so did Joe Biden, you know, Vice President Biden, who's running for president now. He voted for the Iraq war because he was running for president in 2008. Um, so did John Edwards, you know, the the vice presidential candidate in 2004 with the $300 haircuts. He voted for it because, again, they didn't want to look soft on terror. So did Chris Dodd who was another Democrat. He knew he was going to run for president, but he voted for the, uh, the Iraq war because they didn't want to look like they were soft on terror. It was interesting. Um, but then at the same time, there's so many people that thought that George W. Bush was, was incompetent, was a dunce, was not smart at all. 
And yet they vote to give him the power to go to war. It was just such political charades during that time. Um, I was I'd be more interested in seeing politicians stand firmly for what they believe rather than these calculated political positions, depending on whether they're going to run for president or not, or whether, um, you know, they're trying to not offend people in their district, et cetera. It, it was just silliness. Um, but in the end, both parties, um, you know, voted for these wars. Um, absolutely true. And, and, you know, obviously in the Afghanistan war was, was heavily bipartisan. Um, the Iraq war less so. Uh, there were a lot of Democrats that voted to go to war. I mean, obviously the Republicans did, but the Democrats in large numbers did. But I think still a minority of the Democrats voted for the Iraq war, but definitely the ones that wanted to be president voted for it. Um, so, it just it, they they should have declared war or not declared war, not done what they did. But in my opinion, you know, there, there's a lot of similarity with the foreign policy of both of these uh, parties. Here's another question from Kevin Kennedy. Kevin asks, um, wasn't there an Iraqi nuclear scientist that defected to the United States and reported on Saddam's nuclear programs? Remember the IAEA running around Iraq looking for uh, WMD? Yeah, who was that guy? Was it Hans Blitz? I think was his name. And they were trying to find weapons of mass destruction. They were essentially like the UN inspectors and they never found it. And, and again, we were, we went into that war to take out the WMDs, but they never found them. Now, again, was there a report that scientists said they did have them um, at one point? And that's possibly true. There are some people that said, that he possibly he possibly had them at one time, but then moved them like to Syria or some nearby nation. Um, and then, you know, at, at the end, when they eventually caught Saddam Hussein, you remember when they pulled him out of a bunker, um, you know, he, he didn't have them. And I think he even it may have even admitted that he never had them, but it was just being used as a bluff, you know, because they're these dictators that are trying to puff up their their power and authority. And um, it was just a bunch of nonsense. But it was the green light for the military industrial complex to go into war and to create all this chaos that we're suffering from today. So, um, yeah, it's something. Now, let me just say this. You might think, oh, it's easy to say this in 2020. Where were you then? I've always been against I was against Gulf War One. I remember in uh, the early 90s, I was against um, the. Uh, personally, I was against the Iraq war from the very beginning. Um, and then I remember on the Afghan side of it, I thought the military response with aircraft bombings in Taliban sites in Afghanistan, that made sense to me. But to turn it into this like ground troop war, I never was on board with that. And that's still going on today, still going on like almost 20 years later. Um, so then you know, this then led, I mean, with George W. Bush led to all these crazy policies. And it was, um, you know, like the Patriot Act, um, which is the, the, like an ultimate oxymoron. You know, Patriot, you think of a Patriot Act should be about the fundamental values of what makes America great. You know, patriotism. I mean, I would associate that with our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But in fact, the Patriot Act was a violation of patriotism, a violation of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It gave the federal government all kinds of spying powers to um, spy on innocent 
American citizens, things that violated the Fourth Amendment, um, illegal search and seizures. Um, it turned into the TSA where you're in an airport and now the federal government is, is shaking you down. Um, which I think is just nonsense. I, I've always really, really get the hair up on the back of my neck when I go through the TSA because it's just such a waste of time. And the government itself shouldn't be involved in it in the first place. Like if if the airports or more importantly, if the airlines wanted to have their own inspection, I get it. But the federal government is supposed to secure our rights, not violate them. And when you go through TSA, it's it's uh, guilty until proven innocent. Um, and, you know, you're getting pat downs and all this. And you're like, wait a minute. You know, there's a Fourth Amendment you know, against illegal search and seizure. You have no warrant. You have no probable cause. So why am I getting shaked down? Um, so, you know, 9-11, because of it, it, it stokes so much fear. But what ends up happening is that there are always these moneyed interests that are there to take advantage of the situation, to see ways that they can gain more power for themselves, more money for themselves um, by taking advantage of the fear and the hysteria related to 9-11. And that's what we've seen. And that's what we continue to see. There's been this whole infrastructure of so-called security where we have had to um, give away our freedom for some, you know, so-called promised security that frankly often never arrives in the first place. So it, it, it's, it created, you know, all of this nonsense. And then, um, uh, then it, we got to Obama. And and then you ever want to say Obama ended the wars now? No, he didn't. Um, So, first of all, you remember when President Obama ran for office, um, he he definitely said he wanted to end the Iraq war. And I remember very specifically many times throughout the campaign, he said, we will exit um, two brigades a month and we will be out in 16 months. And that was his plan to exit. Um, on a ramp down to get out of Iraq. So 16 months after his inauguration, you know, he was inaugurated in January of 2009. So that means according to the plan that he promised on the campaign trail would mean that he would have been out of Iraq in May of 2010. Were we out of Iraq in May of 2010? No, <laughs> of course not. We were not. So what ended up happening is, is that Right near the end of the Bush administration, they negotiated a deal to get out of Iraq by the end of 2011. And so when Obama became president, he abandoned his campaign promise, which turned out to be a lie. And then he just adopted George W. Bush's plan. But even as we were getting closer and closer to the end of 2011, President Obama was trying to extend it our stay was trying to um, break the terms of that and keep American troops in Iraq, but he was prevented from doing so because of the agreement and the, the pressure from the Iraqi people. And so then he finally you know, decided to, to let it go and then just follow the Bush policy. Again, the Democrat agreed to follow the Republican policy. The two parties are similar. And so you think, all right, so, you know, um, Obama, people will say Obama got us out of Iraq, but then towards the end of his second term, he was sending more troops into Iraq and not just to the embassy, which was this gigantic embassy, but troops that were in there fighting against other rebels and other things. So the war began to escalate back up in Iraq 
um, under President Obama's term. So when people say President Obama ended the wars, that's nonsense. And then on top of it, um, President Obama expanded the Afghan war. In fact, when he was campaigning in 27 and 2008, he referred to that as the good war, the war that we need to be fighting in. And sure enough, you know, right out like the two big things he did when he, after he was inaugurated, one was the stimulus. And the second was the massive expansion of the Afghanistan war. And, and he expanded it. And then, yeah, sure. After it expanded, it decreased. But even when president Obama left office in 2016, there were still troops in Afghanistan. There's still thousands of troops in Afghanistan. So he didn't end the Afghan war either. So um, let me get back to a couple of these comments. Kevin Kennedy said, uh, Paul Bremer lost the war for America. Amanda uh, Matamala says, I agree. Obama did not end the war. And then Kevin Kennedy said, Bush dropped a deuce on Iraq and then Obama smeared it across the Middle East. Uh, and then Amanda agreed with Kevin. But that's basically true. I mean, the Bush administration, you could say, started it. And you can point your finger on when it started. You know, with Iraq, did it start with Gulf War One in 19? Was that 91, I think, or was it 1990 when that went down? Um, did it start then or did it start with 9-11 or did it start in 2003 when when Bush and Cheney sent troops in? But, you know, we can just we can determine who started it. But there's no doubt that the Democrats continue it um, even after Gulf War One, when George H.W. Bush, you know, did the whole what was it? Operation something. I can't remember what they called it, but after that was done, there was a no-fly zone in Iraq during the Clinton administration, and President Bill Clinton enforced the no-fly zone, enforced the brutal sanctions on the Iraqi people that you know dramatically uh, damaged their lives. And so, uh, and President Clinton, um, his military shot down Iraqi airplanes in Iraq that violated the um, the no. What was it? The the airspace rule where they were not supposed to have planes flying in certain geographies of Iraq. So the Democrats often will continue or expand on what the Republicans do for war. It's definitely not true that one party is for war and the other party is for peace, or one party is the good guy and the other party is the bad guy. They're both very similar. They just have little nuanced differences along the fringes, in my opinion. And it's not just in foreign policy, but in a whole range of other issues in domestic policy and financial policy. They're just so similar. Um, and the differences are what we all get hung up on, but the differences represent a tiny fraction of the overall picture. Um, so then um, the other part of it is, is then during the President Obama timeframe, then the the drone wars, you know, expanded. Of course, Bush started the drone wars in 2002. Um, and then, the, you know, they became such effective weapons of war that Obama expanded the drone war. And it wasn't just Iraq and it wasn't just Afghanistan. There were drones bombing people in Yemen and Somalia and I think in Syria. Remember, they captured a drone that had been shot down, I think, in Iran. So there were drones flying all over the Middle East dropping bombs on people, dropping bombs on innocent people. In fact, President Obama dropped a bomb, uh, a, a drone bomb. Well, not him technically, but of course his military dropped a uh, bomb from a drone on a wedding 
and I think it was in Iraq, uh, and it was meant to take out Maybe make sure I got my facts right. I don't know if this is the same incident, but there was another one where it, a drone bomb was was dropped to take out an American citizen, American citizen that should have been guaranteed due process under the law, you know, having habeas corpus rights and, and trial, et cetera. So um, the drone war massively expanded under President Obama and and. Um, uh, yeah, and, and we're we're seeing, you know, here in Poway, we've got General Atomics up on the top of the hill in the business park. They're building a lot of drones because the, the government loves them, whether it's the Navy or the Air Force or any of the other entities of the federal government. So that expanded under Obama. And then, of course, the NSA that was in the National, I think, Security Agency, which, um, of course, was started by Bush. And this is the the outfit that I think it's in Utah and they got this big building and that's where they're, um, you know, spying on uh, emails, on Internet usage, on phone calls. And a lot of times they'll say, well, it's metadata, but it's not the actual data. Sometimes they're saying, well, um, we're not looking at it, we're, but they're forcing the, t- the telco companies to provide the information. The bottom line was this is part of what Edward Snowden overturned. They, they were uncovered. Edward Snowden called out President Obama for expanding the NSA program and clearly showed that the NSA was violating the Fourth Amendment rights of American citizens. And, of course, that, you know, emboldened Snowden and made him more famous, but he was also much more hated by the establishment in Washington, D.C., You know, if you want to call it the deep state, um, he was hated by them. And then, of course, hated by all of the the Murica people that are for nationalism or patriotism because they are just so dead set on getting the terrorists out to hell with the rights of the American people. So, um, again, you know, Bush, you know, got us involved in all these foolish wars, um, largely with the help of the Democrats and um, and sent us into this abyss of problems with our foreign policy using 9-11. Here we are on the anniversary of 9-11, using 9-11 as the flashpoint to to fire up the, uh, the American people, to stoke fear and um, all kinds of emotions in the American people. And then when Obama comes in in office, he just picks up the baton and keeps on running with it. Um, and then President Trump is comes to the stage. And Trump, at this point, remember he was campaigning in 2015 and 2016, and he was saying, well, you know, I'm going to end the wars, these crazy, foolish wars all across the Middle East. You know, we got to get out of these wars. And, and as a result of him saying that, he actually got support from Rand Paul. And Rand Paul was a candidate that I remember I strongly supported when he was running in the primaries for the GOP um, election in 2015. Um, But then once he dropped out, Rand, in my opinion, flipped to the dark side and supported Trump. But Rand felt like he could influence Trump. Rand liked that Trump would say that he wants to get out of the wars. But Trump would never get out of the wars. You know, it's again, Trump is on both sides of most issues. He'll say one thing and he'll do another. And then he'll say the opposite thing. And then he'll be able to say, yes, see, I said I was on this side. And then he'll point to another time he was on the other side. And he plays off of that. And what he says and what he does are often very different. Um, And so here's some great tweets that I'm going to read 
from recently from Justin Amash, who's the one guy in Washington, D.C. that I really support. And he was calling out President Trump. And he says, how many times has Donald Trump announced he's bringing home the troops? Yet the number of troops in Afghanistan and Iraq is still the same as when he entered office. Um, To put things in perspective, from the start of his term to the end, Barack Obama reduced troop levels in Afghanistan by 25,000 and Iraq by 140,000. Donald Trump has so far reduced those troop levels by zero with hopes of reducing troop levels in Afghanistan by 4,000 and Iraq by 2,000. So, yeah, Obama reduced a lot of the troops. But then, remember, he started putting them back into Iraq near the end. But he still didn't end the wars. There were still... We, we should have been out of there. We should have been, we should have, you know, put the close for business sign and left, but we still were there. Obama rightfully gets credit for reducing those troop levels, but um, President Trump has not reduced them at all, even though saying he campaigned for it, even though he keeps reiterating in his stump speeches that he wants to get us out of these foolish wars. He doesn't. Um, let me just read another comment here. And this is from Kevin Kennedy. He says, you got to read um, directorate by uh, directorate S by Stephen Cole, the truth about Afghanistan Dems and reps both made errors. Luckily Trump told Pakistan bye-bye and flew over to India, make some new deals <laughs> with a likely better ally than the paranoid Pakistanis. <laughs> um, you know, Trump said he was going to get out of these wars. And then remember, he dropped the Moab on Afghanistan, the mother of all bombs. He and that was shortly after he was um, inaugurated. He President Trump sent missiles into Syria. Uh, President Trump has been expanding the drone war that Obama already expanded. Um, So President Trump doesn't want to end these wars either. It doesn't matter what he says. Um, Conservatives and libertarians like me, and this is Justin Amash speaking, conservatives and libertarians like me who repeatedly criticize Obama for not ending these wars are now supposed to praise Trump for simply promising to do a fraction of what Obama did. Why? Because Trump talks like a guy who wants to end the wars. Stop talking. Actually end them. (laughs) Of course. So it's 9-11. It's 19 years since America was attacked. 19 years. I mean, there are people in Iraq that are fighting in this war that weren't even born when uh, 9-11 occurred in the United States. Um, And then finally, Justin Amash goes on to say, and let's not forget the drone wars. That's where Trump is unambiguously the worst, launching strikes at a far higher rate than Obama. The lack of transparency from this administration, combined with the media's failure to report on the wars, has helped hide this horrific reality. So I guess what I'm getting at here is, is the title of this podcast is um, 9-11 Groundhog Day. And it's like... Since 9-11, these wars just keep going on and on and on. And these policies in America 
to so-called combat terrorism that have limited the freedoms of Americans has been going on and on and on. The Iraq war is still going on to some degree. The Afghanistan war is still going on to some degree. The war on, um, with drones is expanding. Um, and then we've got these other wars, the, the, the trade war with China and the war on immigrants and, and, um, and then all the domestic, you know, Patriot Act and TSA and the NSA and, and, um, and we haven't even talked about Gitmo. Um, Gitmo was something that President Obama insisted he was going to do. Um, and I thought as the president of the United States, as the commander in chief, I thought he had the ability to shut down a American um, military base prison. Apparently he didn't uh, or else he didn't want to one or the other. It was interesting because th- there were there were some, you know, obviously some, you know, high level you know, terrorists that were captured, they were all denied habeas corpus rights. They were all denied the rights that we stand up for as as Americans, the right to a speedy trial, the right, you know, to due process. They were denied all of that. Again, we violated our own principles as a nation. Then when they wanted to close the the facility, there were people saying, yo, you can't let these people out. They're too dangerous. Well, then there were prisons, and these were actually private prisons, I believe, maybe public, but probably private, in America that had been built these like ultimate ultra security level prisons. And they're saying, we'll take them. We'll take these terrorists out of Gitmo and put them into a prison in Montana or in Tennessee. Um, But the federal government wouldn't do it because the local senator and congressman didn't want to be held liable for putting those terrorists in their backyard. Um, So even the Democrats didn't want to shut down Gitmo. And in fact, I think this was when Harry Reid was in charge of the Senate um, and there was a vote that came forward to shut down Gitmo and um, uh, it what lost. I think it was nine and ninety one. So it was overwhelming bipartisan support to keep Gitmo open, um, even though President Obama claimed he wanted to shut it down. And again, I'm still struggling. I don't understand the rules. Why? If a commander in chief can't just shut down um, a a prison on a military base, why don't they have that authority? I mean, I get why Congress plays a role in a lot of things domestically, but for areas of war, usually the president is the ultimate authority. Um, that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, Kevin Kennedy asks, what should the next president do to limit wars? What is Amash's solution? And that, well, what a great tee up. Um, that's where I'm going to go now. Yeah, I'm going to share my thoughts on this. And and my hunch is, is that Justin Amash probably is largely aligned with how I think he and I are of like minds on a lot of things. Um, The first issue that we have to talk about before we get into wars and everything else is what does America really stand for? I mean, it used to be that we had we were a nation of principles. You know, you know, President Reagan said we were a shining city on a hill, you know, a place a beacon of liberty where people wanted to come to America. And that was a nice line in the eighties, but you know, did they really mean it? Um, Then, you know, we have the statue of Liberty and give us your poor and huddled messes. And we welcomed immigrants to America, but do we mean that anymore? Um, And, and then, you know, we, people refer to the president of the United States as the quote unquote leader of the free world. 
But America has been losing its freedom for so long. And so for the longest time, America was this you know great experiment, a place where capitalism could thrive, individual rights would thrive. Um, there wasn't a, a huge... Uh, a king or an, uh, an, a, a heavy authority in Washington, D.C. Um, things were largely decentralized. America stood for freedom, for economic opportunity, um, and it stood for about being a melting pot that welcomed people from all over the globe um, to come to America and to assimilate into the American culture. But we don't do that anymore. Um, it's it's like out the window there. We don't have any principles. It, what does America stand for? So you think then what is our foreign policy supposed to be? In fact, our foreign policy isn't driven by those principles any longer. It's not driven to keep um, the world you know open for free trade. It's it's not driven by um you know, standing up for democracy and for individual liberty, because we look, we, the federal government looks the other way in other nations where there's huge human rights violations. Um, the, the list goes on and on where we are very pragmatic. We're no longer principled. Um, and President Trump is the ultimate pragmatist. He doesn't have any principles. He just does whatever is politically convenient for him at that point in time. So, We've lost our principles. We don't really stand for anything anymore on the international stage. And that's going to make our foreign policy a befuddled mess because now you have all the corrupting influences that are involved, all the people that want to somehow use the, the, um, their foreign policy as a way to gain more power and more wealth and more influence over the whole process. So it's, it's all motivated by politics not for any sound principles or any solid moral position. So, um, you know, what, what should we do? And now, again, I, you know where I stand, right? This podcast is all about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I talk about that over and over and over again in this because I believe those are really fundamental um, uh, values that, are righteous that were that were written into our Declaration of Independence and really made America great, in my opinion. It really made America its founding on, on a moral footing. Um, we were given the right to our own life. We were given the right to choose and to live our life according to our own values. That's what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is all about. That's why people came here to America to practice their religion. That's why people came to America to escape oppression. That's why people, people came to America to escape poverty, because they would have the liberty to pursue their own life according to their own values. To me, that's a beautiful message, but we've, we've given up on it. We've, we've thrown it out the window. Um, I think if we lived up to that standard, that could be a guiding light um, a, a, a sort of, um, yeah, a, a North star for our foreign policy. Um, Kevin Kennedy goes on to say, uh, term limits. So maybe Congress can take back power. They have handed over to the executive branch. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, but term limits, these people tend to cycle like here in San Diego, Daryl Issa, um, is now you know, moved into another congressional district. Now he's running in the state of California, you know, someone will get term limit out of one office. They run for another office. They're all just political creatures. Term limits to help, but it's definitely not a silver bullet. Um, Yuri Bolin goes on to say, sadly and technically, until an armistice is signed by all parties, it will never end. Look at the Korean War. Even though no one has fired a weapon since 1953, it is still technically active. 
Perfect. Thank you, Yuri. That's exactly right. That war hasn't ended. And there's been a grudge match there on the on the DMZ now for over a half a century. Gosh, we're coming close to three quarters of a century. So um, the wars will just continue and continue. And we keep the American people don't want these wars. I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, obviously, we need to have wars in certain cases. When Pearl Harbor is attacked, you have to respond. I mean, there's obvious times when you have to go to war. But the American people opposed the Vietnam War in droves. But the the, the politicians still sent uh, our, our troops in. There was a military draft. People went in there against their will and were killed in a war that they didn't believe in. And then you go into, um, I think Gulf War One. I, I think, had a lot of a, a support um, the Afghanistan war, I think, in the beginning had great support by the American people. But as it dragged on, lost a lot of support. There was huge opposition to the Iraq war in the very beginning. Um, I remember people in the streets protesting because everyone knew it was imminent and everyone knew it was wrong. Well, not everyone, but most people did. And there was protests not just in America, but in European cities and, and other cities around the world saying America should not invade Iraq. And uh, but, you know, the politicians don't listen to it. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat. Um, they just will continue to go to war. And I think this is the military industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned everyone about when he was leaving office in 1960. So um, that's yeah, that's going on still. Now, what's a righteous um, foreign policy, a righteous and when I say foreign policy, I don't just mean military. I mean everything. So what's a righteous foreign policy? What's a foreign policy that's based on our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, in my opinion, you have to start with trade. We, we need to trade more with nations. And ideally, it's free trade, meaning that the government doesn't get in the way. You know, So if a buyer in, in America wants to purchase product from a seller in China, then let them buy it without having President Trump putting tariffs on it and distorting the market. Because that just, you know, that just not only does that reward the few in America at the expense of the many. I mean, tariffs are a terrible policy. I mean, we can go back to Smoot-Hawley and the Great Depression and uh, tariffs are going to reward a tiny handful of American workers at a factory, but it's going to force all Americans to pay more, whether they're going to pay more for the imported product or going to pay more for the expensive American product. Either way, the American consumer is screwed when tariffs are put in place. Um, and some say, well, the American people haven't really felt the, the full impact of the tariff. Well, other people are. I mean, American importers have to pay the tariff as a duty when it arrives in the United States. So that tariff is paid by an American company. And then that American company will sell the product to distributors and, and resellers and retailers and eventually to the American people. And that cost is spread all the way down through that, co- that, that supply chain. Um, some people say, well, the, the, well, China and the companies in China are absorbing it by devaluing their currency. Well, when they devalue their currency, that makes them more, um, uh, they make them stronger in export markets, which makes greater competition. And it's harder for American companies to compete when the Chinese um, unit of, of money is devalued. Um, but, and then at the same time, when we have trade wars, we're just creating more friction between 
um, foreign nations. We, we need to have more peace, more cooperation, not friction and wars. But the politicians always want the war because the war is what gives them the power and, and gives them the ability to you know, push the buttons and to kind of fuel their ego and in some cases to reward themselves and their friends. So um, we need to have more free trade. So that means no tariffs, no blockades. I mean, how many blockades and embargoes have we had? There were blockades and embargoes on Cuba for the longest time. And I remember President Obama, rightfully so, removed those trade, those embargoes, but then Trump put them back on. Well, who's damaged by embargoes? Most people think you're damaging the people in that nation. You're, you're putting pressure on Cuba to change. But what ends up happening is, is that Americans are the ones that are hurt. American companies can no longer sell into Cuba. Their market has been limited. American citizens cannot travel to uh, Cuba or, you know, maybe travel is very difficult. Um, they can't visit their family and friends. So it limits the freedoms of Americans when they put these embargoes on. These politicians do it, trying to be tough guys, trying to go to war without sending in military, but they end up harming Americans in doing so. And then they run around saying America first, which is just nonsense because they're ended up hurting Americans, just like tariffs. So this is the, all these, these trade battles are just a, a case of, of, Leaders trying to get more power, more authority, more political leverage. And we see that playing out you know, very clearly with President Trump. Um, what should be done? We need to have more diplomacy, more win-win. I talked about win-win a couple of podcasts ago. Um, you know, when you have tariffs, that's win-lose. <laughs> um, when you have embargoes, that's win-lose. But when you have free trade, you have diplomacy, you're looking to cooperate, you're looking for mutual agreeable outcomes, that's win-win. That's the, the mindset we need to be going forward with. So when we're dealing with some of these adversaries, um, you know, before it escalates into a military conflict, we've got to say, what can we do here to find a way to cooperate at some level so that we can ratchet down tension and so we don't have to go to war in the first place? But the leaders always want to ratchet up the attention because that plays into their hands. We need to have as much travel as possible. We need to encourage travel. I mean, how often do you hear about Americans that don't know foreign languages that haven't really ever left America? They don't. When you travel, you have a greater sense of the world around you. You have greater empathy for people in other nations. You get a better understanding of other cultures. And so you have firsthand experience of how other people live rather than getting it filtered or distorted by the news media and, and then ultimately get becoming a person that lives in fear or distrust of people that are different than them. If we encourage travel, we're going to have more um, understanding um, of other people and other cultures. But what ends up happening is, is that the federal government will restrict travel. And ironically now with COVID, these other nations are blocking us out. And so, Travel is being restricted. Um, so that, to me, is a problem with the foreign policy. Um, and I think we need to scale back these wars. All these wars should just end immediately. And people will say, well, you can't just end. It's going to create a vacuum, you know, that the bad guys are going to go into the vacuum and gain power. Well, it doesn't matter when we end. There will be a vacuum, whether you do it today or in five years or with the case of North Korea, nearly 75 years later, there's going to be a vacuum. 
doesn't matter. So just pull the plug. Addition by subtraction. We need to get out of these wars. And it's going to have create a lot more peace on the planet. It's going to um, ratchet down tension. It's going to um, increase America's footing. Um, okay. We have someone coming in to check the printer. <laughs> this is the beauty of doing a live stream. Um, so we, what we need to do is, um, is ratchet down, um, you know, all of this military spending. We need to um, reduce the, the, the federal budget on spending for the Defense Department because it's no longer about defense. It's about offense. So, um, yeah, so th- that needs to change aggressively. And I think if we're able to reduce the budget for military spending and just focus on defense – well, and the other, as they say in the world of sports, the best offense is a is a good defense. Um, so we have to remove or, or take down this aggressive war footing, war posturing, and I think we're going to get to a better place. But nine eleven Groundhog Day keeps continuing over and over and over again because um, our leaders keep fanning the flames of fear. And fanning the flames of war and fanning the flames of, you know, terrorism. And it's gotten way outside its scope, way outside of the lanes of its original charter. And so, um, yeah, the right way to go about this is to really refocus on what the principles of what America is supposed to represent on the on the world stage and then live up to those principles. That's what we need to do. Um, OK, moving along and. Um, you know, just I want to get to some Poway news here. But before we do, just a quick reminder, if you like this podcast, I really encourage you to like it, to share it, to subscribe. You can subscribe on on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, if you're watching on YouTube or on Facebook, you know, give it a thumbs up, a, a, a like. Uh, that's terrific. I'm, I'm not doing it because you, I need you to stroke my ego. It actually helps with the algorithm. So we bubble up higher in a lot of searches, especially on YouTube. Um, so your likes and support are great. And if you could share this with your friends and family, we're trying to broaden the audience. That would be really appreciated. You know, we're in election season and it seems our audience usually gets a lot bigger during this time frame. So that's a perfect time to cue this up. Now, let's talk a little bit about the election season here in Poway. And um, we are, uh, you know, September. So, you know, the the ballots, I think that some of those mail-in ballots are already being distributed. But usually the absentee ballots come out in early October. So um, in early October, the um, people are usually voting. You know, the election day is on, what is it, November 3rd or 5th, something like that. Um, but people often vote, you know, weeks in advance of that election day. So we really only have a few more weeks of this election season, um, you know, before people are really going to be making their final decisions. And so I was really pleased that I was given an opportunity to be a co-sponsor of the uh, the Poway Candidate Forums. And we had one last night for Poway Unified School District. We have another one tonight. And that's going to be for Poway City Council. And one last night was, you know, there it was run by the League of Women Voters. And boy, did they do a great job. Total pros. Um, very even handed. 
They take questions from the audience through their League of Women Voters website. And by the way, if you want to get that link, go on my John Riley Project Facebook page where there is announcement. I think I'm for, or sharing a post from South and Poway, South and North Poway Votes, which is my other co-sponsor. The two of us are doing it. Um, and in that post, I think there is a link to go to the League of Women Voters website where you can type in your questions. Um, so the questions were asked from the audience. It was wonderful. Well done. Um, I was really proud of that. But it was interesting. It was like an hour long and there were only two candidates and it was all school stuff. Tonight, there's going to be five candidates and, 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 and roughly an hour, maybe a little longer. I'm very curious to see how the dynamic changes uh, because there's going to be less time available for each candidate. Last night, you know, we had two candidates running for Area E for Poway Unified School District. This is, generally speaking, South Poway and Sabre Springs. And we have uh, Jimmy Karam and Cindy Seitzma are running. And they were both guests on this podcast. And they are both wonderful guests. They're both really nice people. They both are in it for the right reasons. They have big hearts and they love schools and they have children in the schools and, you know, they've been active in the schools. They're both professors. Um, they both have advanced degrees. I think Jimmy has a master's and Cindy has a PhD. So they've got fantastic credentials, great track records, resumes. Um, they are in it for the right reasons. They all believe in Poway schools. Um, but I thought in last night's debate, Jimmy Karam came off as um, more polished came off as more knowledgeable of the issues. Um, and Jimmy and I, I, you know, I love him as a person. We have some areas of agreement and disagreement on policy, but I thought that even in the areas where we had disagreement on policy, he at least made his case very logically and made a compelling case. Um, and he had done his homework. And I, I thought, I thought he shined a bit more than Cindy did last night. Um, Jimmy also showed some creative ideas, um, but I know that um, Jimmy has, if I recall, the endorsement of the, the Poway Democratic Club and I think the San Diego Democratic Party, I think. And I know that Cindy Seitzma, I don't know if she has the GOP um, uh, party endorsement, but I know that there's some alignment there. So this election might break down along party lines. Um, you know, they say that these school board elections are nonpartisan, but they really are partisan. And we know that Poway is overwhelmingly Republican. But in those districts in Southern Poway and in Sabre Springs, is that also overwhelmingly Republican? Does that give Cindy Seitzman an advantage at the voting uh, at the at the ballot box? I'm, I'm curious to see how this shakes out. But the um, the, the actual uh, candidate forum Lots of questions about low income children. You know, if how are they going to get their federally guaranteed breakfast and lunch and transportation and talking also about low income families that are homeless and how are they going to participate in the school system? It's interesting how school board is oftentimes you know, a candidate for school board is often a candidate for a lot of things outside the scope of school, outside the scope of education. Um, and this always kind of frustrates me personally, because, you know, 
I understand that there needs to be um, a community effort to help people in need. I get it. Um, but I often wonder, why is it the school system is burdened with this? The school system is the one that's always struggling for money. The school system is the one that's always crying that they can't pay the teachers enough. Um, the school system is, you know, in Poway Unified, they have dilapidated infrastructure, but yet they are being placed with burdens. And this is not just Poway, but school districts everywhere being placed with so many burdens on things that have nothing to do with education. They have everything to do with essentially like welfare programs. And I'm like, why is this? I mean, we can argue whether or not those things should occur, but I always wonder why does the school district have to bear that responsibility, especially when they have so many other challenges with their finances. But a lot of the questions were from that basis you know, what are we going to do about these poor and disadvantaged families? Um, there was also a lot of questions related to COVID, which I think is is to be expected. And um, there was another question. It was interesting, and it was about Prop 15. And this is the proposition that was is going to radically reform the Prop 13 from the late 70s. You know, Prop 13 is the one that um, has put limits on the increase in growth on property tax revenue. And so not only can income tax or property taxes only increase, I think, is it 1% a year, um, you know, plus any additional add-ons, because I think we're paying like one point something percent a year with all the bond interest, et cetera, or the bond fees. But the um, Prop 13 is also based on the property's assessed value, not its market value. And the property may have been assessed 20 years ago when the value of that property was a lot lower. And the intent of Prop 13 was that the market value of houses was increasing rapidly in California. And it got to the point where there were some poor, disadvantaged, maybe some old people, senior citizens. They couldn't afford to stay in their home because the property taxes became so high. Um, and, and obviously there's a lot of anti-tax advocates that jumped on board using that as their example to gain public sympathy. Um, now what they want to do with this prop 15 is to essentially take away the prop 13 protections on commercial property, um, on businesses, you know, that lease out retail space or, or even I think in apartment buildings and, um, this question was asked of the two candidates. They asked Cindy Seitzma about it, and she didn't know about the proposition. I was surprised by that. Um, and I think she she struggled with her answer um, about whether or not you know she opposed the, the increase in income tax, the inc- increase in property taxes. But I don't think she really made a really good case for it. Um, Jimmy Karam supports Prop 15, supports removing um, this cap on the property tax because it's going to have a, 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 a flood of money. It's going to come into the schools. So he's all for it. Um, and he made a case for it. I, I, don't, I disagree with him, but he made a case for it. Now, I'm of the opinion we are taxed to death in California as it already is. Our income taxes are by far the highest in the United States. Our state level sales tax, because, you know, what we pay for sales tax is it seven and three quarters? I think there's a state level and then there's a county level. And then in some cases, a city lay- layer to it as well. The state portion of it, California has the highest sales tax in America. Um, our gas taxes are the highest in America. Um, our capital gains taxes are taxed at the income tax rate, which I think makes them the highest in America. Um, and the one area where there is some form of limit on taxes 
is on property taxes. But still here in uh, California with property values so expensive, we still pay a ton in property taxes. The check we write is a big number. Um, so uh, I know that if Prop 15 passes and they're able to get um, commercial real estate out of the equation for Prop 13, um, you know, because obviously a lot of government um, oriented groups that want more money flowing into government are pushing to pass this Prop 15. Um, you know, they want to tax corporations, they want to tax rich people. Um, so there can be a lot more money flowing into the government. You know that if that passes, the next step is they're going to come after the um, uh, Prop 13 on residential properties. I can almost guarantee it. I'm willing to make a bet uh, that that's going to be the case. At some point, they're going to come for that. So I'm I'm all against Prop 15. Um, Cindy Seitzma, I, I thought could have done a lot better on that answer. I don't think she was prepared for that question. Um, it was also interesting in that candidate forum, they asked the uh, candidates um, about budget cuts because Powie Unified is running a deficit and their deficit is, is a problem. In fact, it's been a problem for some time uh, to varying degrees. And now with COVID and everything else, it's gotten to be a, a big problem. And I think they need to cut, is it $8 million out of the budget this coming year? And they asked them, what would you cut? And neither one of them would answer the question directly because, of course, they don't want to upset anyone who's going to be the recipient of that money. But there is so much that could be cut. I mean, number one, they could roll back raises uh, for employees Um, because teachers, you know, are always saying they want more raises. But they have a step and column matrix that over half of them get a raise every year anyways, um, even if the contract isn't given a raise. Um, there's a lot of things they can do to outsource a lot of functions of the school district. I did a whole podcast about that, about all these creative ways that the school district could save money. But a lot of it came down to um, saving money on things that are spent outside the classroom. And the, the school district tends to want to do a lot of things themselves, where I think if they outsourced trucking and warehousing and, and some food services and other things to third parties, I think they have an opportunity to lower their costs and also to save money on the long-term pension obligation for all the employees that would otherwise be hired. Um, But of course, the candidates never really go down that path because they're largely in cahoots with the whole system. Um, But uh, it was interesting that none of them would answer that question directly. Um, But whomever is elected is going to have to make uh, a vote on that because they're going to have to cut. And I'm very curious to see what they do. They've been avoiding cuts and refusing to make cuts for so long. But I think now their hand is really forced and they're going to have to make some hard decisions. Um, here's a point from Yuri Bolin. He goes, that, that is why it makes no sense for Poway Unified School District to take over the Performing Arts Center. They have enough problems. Oh, yeah, of course. I um, mean, that was discussed in the candidate debate. You know, what should happen to the Performing Arts Center? It would be the stupidest thing to um, have the school district buy the um, Performing Arts Center. I mean, the city of Poway would love to unload it, get it off their hands, um, get that negative cash flow out of their books. Um, and, you know, make their budget better. And the city of Poway should do that. They should outsource it. They should sell it. Um, But that's my opinion. I know there's a lot of people that want to keep it in Poway and want to preserve it. Uh, Phil Factor called it the jewel of Poway. I have a different opinion. Um, But uh, I think performing arts centers is something that 
government shouldn't be involved in in the first place. Um, I think that's completely should be private sector, just like an amphitheater or a stadium. Um, the, the taxpayers shouldn't subsidize that. The people that pay for it should be the people that use it. Um, and if that means they got to pay higher prices, then they should. Um, but yeah, so some people think it'd be good for the city of Poway to sell the Performing Arts Center to the school district. But as a taxpayer in Poway, we're screwed either way. You know, we're screwed with a negative cash flow either way. I know that the strategy, it seems to be that they want to take the Performing Arts Center and they want to bundle it into the um, uh, they want to bundle it into the bond. I think that was their goal in the March 2020 election uh, to have bond money take over the Performing Arts Center and use that bond money to do all the maintenance upgrades and maybe even to paper over the operating deficit. Um, but again, I think that's a that's a that's a bad direction to go down. Uh, the city council candidates in tonight's forum, I'm sure, are going to talk about figuring out ways to either retain the Performing Arts Center at a lower cost to the taxpayer, a smaller deficit, or they're probably going to be talking about ways to unload it, to sell it, and in some cases, maybe to the school district. But yeah, I agree with you, Yuri. The the school district has no business taking that over. Um, They can't even afford to pay their existing bills. Um, One other thing um, to talk about locally, I know we're kind of long on this podcast. We're at an hour and 18 minutes, but... um, Gosh, it was a couple of days ago. And I remember I did my Phil Factor podcast was on Monday the 7th. Had a great conversation. Boy, we we talked a lot about Stone Ridge and the farm in Poway. You know, the the old golf course there just north of Espola. And we talked about the um, uh, Kevin McNamara's project to put the homes in there. And, you know, it's a very hot topic here in Poway. A lot of people for it, a lot of people against it. And you see a lot of it in social media. And I was coming back and what did I, I had a doctor appointment, I think on Tuesday and I was on my way home and I just was thinking about the podcast with Phil. And then I decided, you know what? Every time I drive by Stone Ridge, I just drive on a spola. I have no reason to go North of a spola, like on St. Andrews and Tam O'Shanter and those streets that go around the golf course and Cloudcroft. That's another one. So I figured, you know what? I got a little time on my hands. I'm going to go on a little adventure. And so, um, you know, obviously what little bit you can see off of Spola, the golf course looks awful. You know, it's just, you know, a ratty um, chain link fence. It's uh, weeds and, you know, it's just an abandoned golf course. Um, but as I went up St. Andrews and you can get a little peek in between um, houses. In some cases, there's an, a wide opening where you can see the golf course and you can see portions of it, like, you know, the, the undulations of the greens and, and the, some of the, um, the hazards on the, on the, on some of the fairways. And you could see where the tee boxes were. Um, but it had been so overgrown. It was almost like an archeological site. Um, and it was interesting as I was driving around the neighborhood, I would see signs, um, on people's front yard, um, that were either yes on P or no on P. And, I'm going to ask you, I'll put this question out to you in the audience. If you're watching, feel free to drop in what you think the answer to this is. Do you think people living on the Stone Ridge golf course or like right near it on the streets that surround it? Do you think they would be more in favor of prop P or more against prop P? And I know that there are some homeowners there that hate the mess, hate the weeds and want to see it transformed into usable land. But there's other people 
that don't want more congestion, don't want more traffic and don't want more construction. They just want it quiet there. And they kind of like how it's largely in an empty space. Well, as I was driving around, I would say I saw both yes and no on peace signs. It had to be at least an eight to one ratio, maybe even as much as a 10 to one ratio of more signs for yes than for no. It was overwhelming support for Prop P for the people that live on the streets surrounding the golf course on St. Andrews, on Tam O'Shanter, and on Cloudcroft. Um, and Kevin Kennedy says, I assume the majority want w- what was there 20 years ago. Well, yeah, but that's the thing is you can't freeze time. <laughs> you know, the society evolves, things change, um, and you can't roll the clock back. The golf course is not profitable. The business, the property owner is not going to pursue it. So the question now is, is whether to keep it abandoned or to develop it. Um, and they could keep it abandoned and figure out another solution down the road. I am in favor of Prop P. I live near the the, the golf course. Um, I live off of Stone Canyon. And I know there's some of my neighbors here on Stone Canyon um, that are very concerned because they think traffic is going to be diverted up Martin Coit and then down Stone Canyon so that they can, you know, kind of pop out, you know, where the Sprouts grocery store is on Pomerado. Um And it's a legitimate concern because there'll be a four-way stop at the intersection of Martin Coit and Espola. But they're going to improve traffic flow so substantially on Espola that I think we're going to see a a lot more westbound traffic west on Espola out of Stone Ridge than the few that are going to try to trickle through the side streets on Martin Coit and Stone Canyon. That's my instinct. That's what it tells me. Uh, because people that are going to be going in and out of Stone Ridge uh, or of the farm are probably going to be going to shopping in, in, in Rancho Bernardo area, most likely, or they're going to be going to the freeway. And so is there going to be some traffic on Stone Canyon and Martin Coit? Yeah, there'll be some. But you know, we're talking 160 houses, and that in some ways sounds like a lot, but it's not really that many. I mean, there might be 300 cars, but they're not going to be all on the road at the same time. You know, for the, they're going to be parked or they're going to be at work most of the time. There might be a little bit of rush hour activity, but it'll be interesting. But I'm generally supportive of it. I, I'm um, a big property rights guy. Um, I, I don't think the zoning laws are righteous. Um, I think the zoning laws are largely what makes housing in California is so expensive because there are so many areas that are off limit to development. It restricts the supply of housing. We have huge demand for housing in California, but with such limited supply. That's why real estate agents say there's no inventory of unsold homes. Um, there's, there's no inventory of homes that they can represent the buyer, very little. And so the, when people get bids on those houses, they, they go into bidding wars because there's such demand, it just drives up the cost of not only to purchase real estate, but the same dynamic occurs in the rental market. Um, that's why rents are so high, because there's such little development. And of course, everyone's a NIMBY. No one wants it in their backyard, whether it's on the golf course. Well, in this case, people that live around the golf course actually do want it in their backyard. That was surprising. I thought it would be more of a 50-50 when I drove around it, but it was more like a 80-20 or a 90-10 ratio. Um, 
you know, and, and they're putting in more housing along Poway Road. I know the people that live on or near Poway Road are not happy about it. And I understand why they don't want more traffic. They don't want more congestion, um, but they need to build more housing and they need to build more um, apartments and rental properties. Cause you know, there's people that work in the business park. Uh, there are people that are going to be working at the Amazon facility in uh, the building that they're going to be occupying shortly up in the business park. Um, they, you need to build more housing and the more housing that's built, it's going to have a cascading effect to open up more, um, more places for rent and for sale, which is going to relax the pressure for upward pricing for both home sales and rentals. So, I'm I'm generally supportive of more development for those two reasons, because I support property rights. I think a property owner should be able to build on their own land as long as they're not harming someone else. And at the same time, I also believe that we need we have a housing crisis and we need more housing. Um, so I was supportive of the development that Schlesinger wanted to do. What was it in 2017 when they wanted to put in those condos? on the golf course uh, for 55 and over. Um, And then when we got to, um, you know, the Poway Road development, I've been supportive. And when we've gotten to this new farm project, I'm supportive. Um, I do realize that the Poway Road situation is, you know, potentially a lot of units going, they're going in now. And Fairfield was just talking about putting in a lot more units where the golf, uh, where the bowling alley and the thrift stores are. That hasn't been approved I think that's probably still going to be debated. But one way or the other, there's going to be a lot more housing there. Um, I don't think Poway is the city in the country any longer. I think that moniker doesn't hold true. Um, it hasn't held true, I don't think, since I moved here in 1996. It's part of its heritage. It's part of its history. But this is a suburban city. It, it's it's not the country. Um we're like right next door to Scripps Ranch and Sabre Springs and Carmel Mountain. You know, it's just kind of suburban sprawl at this point. There are tracked homes all over Poway. It's not it, the city and the country sounds nice, but that's and some people think that's what our brand is and our character is. But in reality, that's not really who we are. I mean, we're 90 percent city and 10 percent country. Yeah, sure. Some people have horses and there's some ranches and there's some people with large property. But it's not like we're and yeah, we have a rodeo. okay. but it's not like we all live on dirt roads and gravel roads and go to the general store. And it's not like we live in Campo. You know, Um, that's the country. Um, We don't live in um, Warner Springs, you know, or something like that. We live in, in a suburban city and it's been largely built out. There's not too much land to build on. So I think. We have to ask ourselves, what what is Poway? What does it really need to be? Um, putting in a lot of housing on Poway Road is going to dramatically change Poway Road. Um, we'll see how it all shakes out. I know that um, since I moved here in 96, there's been conversations forever about transforming Poway Road, modernizing Poway Road, making Poway Road a city center, a true downtown, having um, multi-use, you know, um, commercial and residential, a walkable community. Um, But then they want to put in the residential and then people get upset because maybe it's too much residential. So it's hard to say. And then people get upset. Well, making these developers out is evil, but those people that own the land are Poway property owners. They pay property tax to the city of Poway. Um, They are, Powegians, they own property in Poway. Some may live here, some may not, but they are 
Poway property owners. And I think they should have a great deal of control what they choose to put on their property. And if a golf course or a bowling alley or a thrift store is no longer profitable, then they should have the ability to monetize their own land in their own way, as long as they're not violating the rights of other people. And I think that's where it get, becomes a debate. So I'm, I'm way off track, but um, it was interesting to see that there was a 10 to one ratio or maybe even an, uh, you know, an eight to two ratio of yes on peace signs versus no on peace signs as we went around Stone Ridge um, on St. Andrews and Tam O'Shanner and Cloudcroft. I was surprised by that. It was overwhelmingly four. Now, granted, that's just looking at street signs on front yards. I mean, 80% of the houses had no sign at all. So you don't really know what everyone else is thinking, but the people that are most passionate are going to put the sign in their yard. So it's interesting. Um, okay. So just a couple more things to share. Um, just want to remind you, Kaylin Frank will be joining us on the live stream Monday, September 14th at 2 PM. Kaylin Frank is the incumbent uh, for Poway city council district four. Um, her, she has two opponents, Chris Olps, who was on this podcast um, last year, and then Frank Fournier, who joined me about a week and a half ago. So Kaylin, of course, was here in 2018 when she was running um, in the at-large election. Uh, I had a wonderful discussion with her. She's a very pleasant person. Um, and, you know, it'd be really interesting to debate the issues. Um, I'm curious to see how she um, responds to some questions, um, you know, especially given that there's so much activity right now in her district, in District 4, with all the construction and on, on Poway Road and and the community center and senior center that's going in. I mean, there's and the business park. I mean, there's a lot going on in District 4. So I think Kaylin will be a really interesting interview and also to compare her answers to Frank Fournier's, who was just with us. And, and for the record, you know, I have an open invitation on this podcast for any political candidate. I don't care if you're running for mayor or school board or city council, you're running for county superintendent, you're running for governor, you're running for president of the United States. We had Fernando Garcia on the podcast um, earlier this year. He was running for Congress. That was our first congressional candidate was on the podcast. That was wonderful. Um, and, um, yeah, so all, all candidates are invited, not just here in Poway, but I, I like to open this up to anybody in San Diego County. Um, so if you're running for Encinitas city council or Escondido school district, or you're running for the mayor of, you know, Imperial beach, you're welcome to join me on this podcast. Feel free to share this information. If you know anyone that is a candidate, I post on my Twitter feed periodically that I invite all candidates because, Having the candidate as an interview guest is wonderful because we we if you're a, if you're a voter you know we're educating you on this candidate and we're in like a one or a two hour conversation so you really understand the character of that candidate you understand what makes them tick you understand what drives them more so than like a mailer or a one sentence quote in a newspaper or maybe a thirty or sixty second response in a candidate forum. In these long form conversations, you really, really get to know these candidates. I think this is great for voters. Um, but for me, as a guy that's doing a podcast, I love it because not only is it good for, you know, we get a lot of downloads and a lot of viewers when we have candidates on here. But 
there's so many interesting issues to talk about with political candidates that are going on in our society and our government and our culture that it just creates a platform, some, some really wonderful discussions. And, you know, in some cases we can ask each other challenging questions and debate it. Sometimes we can explore things together. I'm naturally curious. So I love that. Um, Yuri Boland says, when I ran for mayor in 2018, everyone that I spoke with that lived in Poway were against the Poway Road specific plan. There is a difference between property rights and altering the landscape of our city. Remember, it was five council members for uh, four city officials, three of whom no longer work for the city and 11 ad hoc committee members, over 31,000 registered voters. Um, Yuri, I... I respect what you're saying. Um, I have a different opinion. Um, the one group of people that you left out on your list are the people that own the property. Um, those property owners should be able to build in their property. And is it going to change the landscape of Poway? Well, yeah, but things change. You, you, you can't freeze time. You can't, um, you know, do a time warp and like, you know, like uh, back to the future and go back to 1984 and, and hit the pause button. There's going to be an evolution. And yeah, is there a way to plan it? Is there a way to get community input? Sure. But the property owner has rights to their own property. Um, they should be able, in my opinion, to build on their own property. Um, and if someone else doesn't like what they're building, well, then they're just going to have, and it's not, if as long as it's not harming them, then they're just going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. Just like in my community, if someone decides to build at the, on that land next door, like up the street from me, there were three homes that were put in three brand new houses. And I could have like, Oh, I don't want this development here. I go, you know, it's not my business. It's their business. It's their land. Did it change the landscape of our community? It, well, it did to a degree. Um, but to my, in my opinion, it's, you know, it's their property. It's their business. I know there's people that disagree with me on that point. Um, so, Yuri, um, I know that you were not in favor of it. I know we had a really good conversation in 2018 where you wanted to preserve Poway. You wanted to kind of spruce it up. I remember you were saying with some um, facelift of some of the buildings. I know you wanted to keep the senior center, community center. Um, I know that... Um, you wanted to move businesses into some of the vacant buildings on Poway Road. Those are some really good ideas. And I, I, I support you on some of that. Um, but still, you know, if, if the owner of the bowling alley wants to put something else there, they should not be obligated to keep a bowling alley there. Um, they should be able to build housing there if they want, in my opinion. Now, I know there's zoning laws, but, you know, we all have a difference of opinion there. I, I think zoning laws are problems. I think zoning laws is why housing is so expensive in the state of California because it prevents the creation of supply. And then the supply demand curve gets out of whack, high supply, low demand, or excuse me, <laughs> I said it backwards, high demand, low supply, and that makes prices go up. Okay. So um, you can continue the conversation. Seek me out on Facebook, my John Riley project, Facebook page on Twitter at John Riley Poway. Um, love to continue the conversation. I have a couple of closing quotes. And this first one is an excerpt from a GOP presidential debate in 2000 and 
was it four or eight? I think it was 2008. And this is from Ron Paul. And remember Ron Paul was on the stage and I think Rudy Giuliani was up there. It had to have been 2008, right? Because 04 was when Bush was the incumbent. But Giuliani was there and McCain and who else was on that stage? I can't remember. But but I know Ron Paul ran and he said, my point is that if another country does to us what we do to others, we aren't going to like it very much. So I would maybe say we ought to consider the golden rule in foreign policy, uh, Ron Paul said as the crowd laughed and jeered. We endlessly bomb these other countries, and then they, we wonder why they get upset with us. And I just thought that was so wonderful when he said that because, yeah, that's why we got – That's Osama bin Laden said that. He says that's why we bombed um, 9-11. We went, you know, sent the planes into the, the Twin Towers is because – we were attacking them and their nations. And it was amazing that a Republican um, candidate to a debate for the primary, and I think it was even in South Carolina, if I recall, um, which is a pretty heavily conservative Christian area. You have a candidate saying we need to have a golden rule for our, our foreign policy, and he was booed. It's like the Philadelphia Eagles fans booing Santa Claus, you know, Booing the golden rule. It's like, wh- wh- where do we go wrong? So um, yeah, I am thinking about 9-11, the 19th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. Well, imagine if we had a foreign policy like the golden rule, because imagine, if you will, that, you know, we had uh, Chinese military bases in California and Texas and they were occupying lands here. And they had tanks and aircraft and they were at, you know, imagine if the San Diego port had Chinese military uh, uh, aircraft carriers. We wouldn't like that. (laughs) Yet we put our own military in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and and a whole laundry list of other nations, you know? So yeah. So right on Ron Paul. And then the last one is a tweet that Justin Amash sent earlier today. Um, and he said, it was really short and right to the point. He said, remember 9-11, honor the victims, seek peace, not war. It was beautiful. So Justin Amash, remember 9-11, honor the victims, seek peace, not war. So I thought that was great. Um, Kevin Kennedy um, chimed in. Nice work, John. Thank you. Hey, thanks. I appreciate that, Kevin. I appreciate that. Um, Kevin, you also said you supported redevelopment. Um, right on. Um, and I know there's a lot of mixed feelings about all this development in Poway. There's some for, some against. I kind of made my point known. Um, Yuri, you said, I see your point. I guess this is about building um, in Poway, probably more so about Poway Road. Um, but moderation and slow growth would be a better alternative to Poway Road. Um, yeah, I, I, I understand that. I, they're definitely moving aggressively on the redevelopment of Poway Road. Um, I get it. It was always part of their plan. They were going to redevelop that area between community and carriage. Um, They seem to be going at a fast clip. I hear you. Sometimes I wonder it's politically motivated, you know, because Steve Voss is running for county supervisor. Is that a reason why they've accelerated this? I don't know. But I know they've been talking about doing this forever. I'm kind of happy they're finally doing something. Um, So. uh, And then, Yuri, another great show. Thank you, Yuri. I appreciate your comments. So, um, Wow, we went an hour and 40 minutes. I was blabbing about foreign policy. So um, I'm glad we had a conversation. See, this is how I want these live streams to work. So you guys share with me your comments and thoughts. I got my computer right here. And I'll read your comments on the air. 
and I'll respond to you and we'll have a conversation, a discussion, and we'll make these podcasts interactive. Um, so there will no longer be a solo podcast. I'll either have a guest officially or uh, we'll have, you know, good people like you, Yuri and Kevin and Amanda that, um, that shared your thoughts and comments with us. And I appreciate that. Okay. So this is the John Riley project. This is episode number 159. Um, thank you very, very much for joining me. Um, please, uh, come tonight to the, uh, League of Women Voters Candidate Forum for Poway City Council. We're going to have five candidates there. It's going to be um, incumbent Barry Leonard and the challenger, um, and the challenger um, Phil Factor, excuse me. And then in District 4, the incumbent Kalen Frank and the challengers Chris Olps and Frank Fournier. So that's going to be great tonight. Looking forward to that. Um, and hope you guys could join us and support our local candidates this evening at seven o'clock. Thanks again, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Happy Friday to you and um, have a a great 9-11. Bye-bye.